good Erev Shabbos. Mazel tov. Mazel tov on our first full week together. We made it from Leil Shishi to Leil Shishi. And it is a tremendous testament to the Mesiris Nefesh. To the Mesiris Nefesh, the type of staff that we have here, that after an entire long, exhausting week, turning Thursday night into Erev Shabbos. So first and foremost, thank you to everybody for coming out tonight, for making time, for making space to come and learn together. I'm very, very excited about tonight. A lot of thought goes into these Thursday night programs, a lot of planning, a lot of advanced planning. And it's been a couple of years now that we've been talking up to, speaking to, with Rav David about coming to speak. We're trying to find someone who can share a, a message that's in sync with what we're trying to cultivate here. The empowerment that we're incubating here. Not just in theory, but someone who embodies it. Rav David's a friend. Most importantly, a person who's a role model, who lives it, who's doing it at home and in his professional role as the Director of Education at NCSY. A person who's an Erlichem Mensch, an Ishiyasha, like we're talking. An Ishiyasha, somebody who knows what the main thing is and is literally empowering a generation of Mashpiyim and NCSY making Torah accessible to thousands and thousands of Jews with creative methodology as an educator, as a mechanech the Talmud of Mary Yisrael and Shalvin and YU, the PhD candidate as a mechaber sefer amazing Twitter feed at Dibash Ideas Most of the saved the most important, you know, leading up to it. And together with his colleagues at NCSY and the OU are really leading what's this, this amazing effort that uh, 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 literally inspiring a generation. I just want to recognize also that the Rav Ari Rakoff is here tonight from the OU, NCSY. Bari is, is, you know, in the world of Jewish institutional life, one of the ones who gets it right. He's, he's a a leader's leader. Hashem was mazakim to have what sounds like an awesome job doing leadership development at NCSY. I mean, NCSY is amazing. The reach, the breadth, and Klal Yisrael is absolutely amazing. Uh, so thank you for coming tonight and uh, being mechabed us and seeing what we do here. I feel like, you know, among organizations in the world, we're, we're in this together. And at NCSY and at the OU and other noble organizations, it's, it, it's one light that's refracted in many, in many different directions. And to be able to have them here tonight with us is a very conscious and very clear message that uh, we are all partners working for Kvod Shemaim, working to cultivate Ahavas Yisrael that's drawn from a higher place. And to be mechabed us tonight with a Mishmar uh, Sicha, it is a tremendous pleasure to, to introduce my dear friend, uh, Rabbi David Beshevkin.
Shush, thank you so much, uh, Judah, and to all the friends and Yedidim and family who are here, who are here today to uh, take Thursday night and maybe do something a little bit special. I'm not sure where I was, but I know what I was looking at when I discovered the Camp Hask theme for this summer. Looking at my phone, like I do, spacing out, and all of a sudden, I'm scrolling through my phone, and I see one picture of an Oompa Loompa. Okay, not gonna, not gonna freak out. It's not trending. I scroll past, and all of a sudden, several Oompa Loompas start enveloping my feed. I see references to snozberries, more than one, which is which is unusual, even even in my feed. And I started to ask myself, what's going through? What is this trend? What is this theme that's overtaking my social media, my account? And I looked for it and I found a link to the opening opening orientation, to the opening sicha that your esteemed director, that Reb Judah gave here, that spoke about turning Camp Hask into... A dream factory into the great Willy Wonka chocolate factory. And right away it, it brought to mind one Maramukum, one source that I want to share with you. There are a lot of ambiguities when you come to speak in camp. I, I made a few phone calls before I came. Number one, and this is the only time that I, it's not the only time, I'm lying, but I called somebody and asked them what I should wear. I'm going to be honest with you. I did. I called somebody. Should I wear a tie? Should I go along with the Becca show? Will they believe me? They, they said it won't pass. It's not going to work with this crowd. They know. They know when it's real. They know when it's not. But the other question I asked, and thank you to, uh, to Jenny. I don't know where Jenny is. I didn't get a chance to thank her. I said, what about my Macomo sheets? What about my Macomo? Turn on or turn off? Does that work here? And she said, turn off. It's, it's 9.45 at night. Most people are pretending that they're listening. We're, we're tired. We want to know what's happening next. Don't give out Meyer Makomo sheet because that's the tell. Because you get the Meyer Makomo sheet and you just start making basic calculations. It's like Yom Kippur at, three, at 2.30 in the afternoon when you're wondering when Muslim is going to end and you start counting pages. And you start looking and say, I don't know what this guy has in mind. But we, don't, we only got 20 minutes of attention right now. I'm counting 12, 13 Meyer Makomos. Sometimes they make it in two columns to make it look a little shorter. It's not going to fool this crowd. But what I wanted to do here tonight is I wanted to talk about one Maramukum. And I even brought a couple photocopies. I even brought a couple photocopies because it's a letter. It's a letter that wasn't written by a rabbi. It wasn't written by a rebbe. It was written by a Jew. A Jew who was raised in an Orthodox home, but went on to Hollywood, and he starred and got the role as Willy Wonka, the original, not the creepy Johnny Depp one that came out (laughs) 10 years ago. I'm sure we'll talk about the hashkafas of that remake a different time. That's not what we're going to talk about today. But the original, the real one. And it's a letter that Gene Wilder, who starred as Willy Wonka, wrote to the producer, Mel Stewart. 
And the first thing that struck me when I read the letter is I was a little bummed out that we don't name our Jewish children Mel anymore. There's a whole generation of people growing up in the, in the 50s. Does anybody here know, like, oh, my friend's father, yeah, Mel. I knew Mel Swebecker, he was the chiropractor. Everybody knew a Mel. Where, where are the young 15 to 20-year-old Mel's in this generation of Jewry? Okay. I said, that's not... That's not why they, that's not, that's not turning Thursday night into Arab Shabbos though. We're going to talk about something else. He wrote a letter after he was cast as Willy Wonka. He wrote a letter to the producer. And he said, I got the role. I got the role. I am, star, I am going to be Willy Wonka. For decades of children's memory growing up, I'm going to be that person. But I have a few stipulations. And he wrote a letter, and I don't think it's a stretch to say, that changed the way I think about religious experiences. That changed the way I think about religious growth. Because you could watch the movie, and you should watch the movie, find the time. You could watch the movie, you could look at the memes, and you could learn a lot. But it's incomparable to the letter that he sent a year before he got the role going through the details. What do you say? Can, we, can I hand out like that we, could, that we can share? That we can share this? Is that okay? Is this okay? I'm looking, I'm looking at Dr. Benji for direction. I didn't bring enough copies, not nearly enough. So it'll be like the one blanket we share with a lot of Jews. I brought like one for every... I don't know, five, but don't worry, there's never been a riot or any sort of stampede started because of giving out sore sheets. People will behave themselves, they'll get in line, but pass out, it's a letter, it's the only source that I want to discuss inside. I just like pass a few down, if you don't have one, it push it doesn't matter, it push it doesn't matter if you don't have the letter. It looks like it's four pages, reshown, don't panic. Just because you see the staple there, so you know it's more than one page. It's only two pages, but it's only one letter. Because it's printed out over here. And over there is just the original Ksaviad of Gene Wilder. And I'm going to read it a little bit, a little bit a drop out of order. But I want you to read it, I want you to read it carefully. Dear Mel, Mel is the producer of the movie... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There's another diuk we could talk about at different times. Of the book was not called Willy Wonka. It was Charlie's Chocolate Factory. So there's a Torah there too. Not for tonight. He writes a letter, Dear Mel, I've just received the costume sketches. I'll tell you everything I think without censoring. And you take from my opinion what you like. I saw the sketches of, of what am I going to be wearing What's this outfit that I'm going to wearing to transform and create this world of imagination? I'm skipping all the way down. First word on the, word, on the line is slime. It's about eight lines up from the bottom. Slime green trousers are icky, he says. In this sketch, I see that the pants you have me wearing are green. They're icky, but sand-colored are just an unobtrusive for your camera, but tasteful. Now listen to this line. Listen, listen, 
Listen to Gene Wilder preparing to create the world of imagination. Preparing to creating the fun, the excitement, the joy. The, the, the world of uninhibited geschmack that he was going to create of Charlie's Chocolate Factory. Listen to this next line. The hat is terrific. He wore that great hat. But making it two inches shorter would make it more special. Making it two inches shorter is being filmed from, from 30 feet away. Making it two inches shorter will make it more special. And I want you to think a little bit about the attention to detail that he was putting in to create a world that seems totally carefree and totally uninhibited. If I got a letter from somebody telling me to change the dimensions of a hat by two inches, that would be hashtag no chill. Two inches. What difference does it make? Two, who, who cares? The message I got from this, and it's a message that I'm sure you've heard 101 times, but it bears repeating, is that those two inches in the hat matter. The Svasemes is quoted, a little bit misquoted, but the idea of, as I understand it, that if you want to make something great, if you want to make something holy, if you want to make something magnificent, then it's not enough to be the carefree person in the room. It's not enough to be the person in the room who, I don't care, ah, stop, relax. What, what difference does it make? Those two inches do make a difference. The hachana, your preparations, your attention to detail, Every inch, your costume, the color of your pants, it does matter. It does matter. And that even when you're constructing, not just the architecture of a building, but you're constructing a world to be carefree, to be joyous, to be sweet, that world of imagination, you need hachana there too. And if you're going to create that world, whether it's a world of tefillah, whether it's a world of Shabbos or it's a world of snozberries. Every inch in that world makes a difference. I think a lot of times the reason why, and we get numb to these ideas. We get numb to these ideas. We get numb to these ideas because, A, details stink. I hate details. And nobody wants, nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. Nobody wants to think how the sausage is made. If anybody's ever gone to a pizza store in the summer, and you see the person, these pizza stores in the mountains, they're, they're not big, air-conditioned, spacious places. You have, you have David, you have Dudu in the back, rolled up his sleeves, it's schwitzy, it's very schwitzy, but you don't want to put the two and two together. You don't want to think about when the guy handing you the pizza does a full brow wipe all over his very thick, hairy arms and hands you the pizza. You don't want to put that together and say, is that how the pizza was made? Did, did this get in the food? How, how did this get to me? You don't want to put two and two together. We don't want to think about the details. It's much easier to just eat the pizza, enjoy the pizza. But hachana matters. 
And those are the two inches that he wrote to Stuart. Say, so make it two inches shorter. And there, there's a, a great story, a story that was told in probably the, the largest audience, probably the most prestigious audience, the, the, the Kinnis HaShluchim. It was told by Rabbi Sachs about the one time that he met, that he met the Rebbe. The one time that he met the Rebbe. And Rabbi Sachs was telling him, Rabbi Sachs was telling him, the Rebbe, he was saying, talking about what, what's happening in life right now. What was he doing over the summer? Where was he in yeshiva? And he was complaining. He was saying, right now things aren't so good. And he told the Rebbe, he said, the situation, the situation I find myself in, it's not so great. And the Rebbe got very harsh with him. He said, what are you talking about? We don't use that language. The situation you find yourself in. Like, like you woke up one morning and all of a sudden you're, you're shun a bet in seminary and you have no idea how you got here. We don't find ourselves in situations. The Rebbe looked at him and pat him on the cheek and says, in Judaism we, we put ourselves in situations. We construct situations. Because our lives, the details of our lives, they don't just fall together magically. It requires hachana, it requires planning, it requires looking at the outfit and commenting. And commenting on every inch and every single detail. On the sidebar, it's not in this letter, there's a great scene in Willy Wonka, in the movie. How many, in a show of it, how many here have actually seen this movie? How many here have seen the, the creepy one, the, the redo? Okay, you should be ashamed of yourselves, but okay. It's two hours you're not going to get back. It's two hours you're not going to And you're a little creepier yourself after seeing it. <laughs> Holding eye contact for a little too long. It's a creepy movie. There's one scene in that original Willy Wonka movie that was improvised. It was not a part of the script. And Willy... Gene Wilder, who played Willy Wonka, reached out to the producer, it's on this sidebar, and he said, I want to change something, and read this sidebar. When originally offered the lead role in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory by director Mel Stewart in 1970, Gene Wilder accepted on one condition. When I make my first entrance, and when I walk into the room, I'd like to come out of the door carrying a cane and then walk towards the crowd with a limp. And you know that scene, he comes out. After the crowd sees Willy Wonka is a cripple, they all whisper to themselves and then become deathly quiet. As I walk, walk towards them, my cane sinks into the cobblestones. I'm walking on and stands up straight by itself. But I keep on walking. So he's walking, he's like, kind of like hovering, and the cane gets stuck in the ground. And he almost pretends like he doesn't notice, and he's there. And then he keeps, on, he keeps on saying, until I realize that I no longer have my cane. I start to fall forward, and you think like he's about to fall down, because he came out like he was this altum, alter yid, and he, he couldn't walk, and all of a sudden the cane got stuck, and he's about to fall over, and in that iconic scene that he added in, he falls over, and at the last second, he does a somersault. I start to fall forward and just before I hit the ground, I do a beautiful forward somersault and I bounce back up to a great applause. Now listen to his reasoning why. 
Listen to these reasoning why, because this is the counterpart to the details. Ask why Wilder said, because from that time on, no one will know if I'm lying or telling the truth. That world of imagination that Willy Wonka created, if the second he comes out and it looks like he can't walk, and he made a whole big spiel out of it, and then all of a sudden, last minute, he does something very unexpected, so you never... It's not so predictable anymore. You never know what's coming next anymore with Willy Wonka. Can he walk? Can he walk? Does he need the cane? Does he not need the cane? And it reminds me of a story there. The, the, the Boston Arebi, the, the previous one, was one time invited to speak at Harvard. He was the, the Rebbe in Boston and he was invited to speak in Harvard. And he, he came out and, and to see him in Harvard, he had a very long white beard had a long white beard and he, you know, he looked like he was from the old country. He had a long coat, Garto, a whole thing, a whole production. And he came out like a real Altaïd, like an old, old war Jew. And, and he came out with his Gemara and, and he opened up his Gemara. And, you know, he like opened up his eyes. He looked at the crowd. All the Harvard students are, are sitting there waiting for, for what's this man going to say to us? And he had his Gemara and he says... Shtayn Gemara, Zaktoysis, Fagrashi, then he looked up, he says, I got you nervous, didn't I? And the whole Harvard crowd like let out like a big sigh. They didn't know. They're like, holy. Oh, yeah. And then he started talking, he had a perfect English, he was sophisticated, he was academic. He wanted to get them nervous, he wanted to show them, I could be unexpected, it's not so predictable, it's not, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. I got you nervous, didn't I? I think in religious life, when we pay attention to all of these details and the hachana that's needed, there's something dangerous that can happen that I think this improvisation is helpful for. And that sometimes we lose the element, I don't want to call it surprise, I don't want to call it improvisational I think sometimes in religious life, and we have to pay attention to every detail, we have to make sure the hat isn't two inches, but in religious life we can become a character, we can become a, a picture of what other people's expectations are of us. And we could stop focusing and we could stop surprising others, because at the end of the day we're not even surprising ourselves with our Yiddishkeit. I'll be honest, and you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but there was a stage in my life, and to this day, I still a little bit have this stage in my life. Is that when I finished Shimona Esrei, there's a teeny piece of me, and it used to be a bigger piece, that I wonder, I look around, I say, eh, it was a little short. It was a little short. I look at the Hebra who are leaders, who really plugged into seminary, who plugged into yeshiva, and I look up and I look at their davening and I say, they're, they're going a little longer. They're, they're going long. They, they're doing the real Hail Mary pass. And I kind of, I ran 10 yards and got tackled. And now here, I'm done. So sometimes when I was really in a weaker, more pathetic period of my religious growth, so you would, you would stop and you have that period in Elokai Nitzur where you can like insert your own tefillahs, which for me was just like filler. There was like buffer that I could stretch this out and make this a more lengthy, impressive Shimona Esrei. 
So I would daven, daven for cousins, daven for future Enochloch, for, for, for Klal Yisrael, for Rabbanim, it should be good. And I would go through the whole list every time because I said the words, I said them with feeling, but I was finished. And I would look around and say, should my davening be done already? And I think sometimes people wonder and people ask themselves that it's other people's expectations, it's other people's religious expectations that are dictating how they present themselves. And they begin to lose themselves in the experience. I remember I asked my Rebbe when I was in yeshiva, I said, I'm a yeshiva bacher, but I feel like it's more yeshiva and it's not so much bacher. It's mostly the place that I'm in, the environment that I'm in. And I'm worried that at the moment you take me out of this place, I'm going to be empty. The moment that those expectations, the moment I stop looking around, I'm worried that what's going to be left that's coming from me. Rav Hutner has a beautiful letter where Rav Hutner writes and he says that in religious growth, it's like boiling a, a big pot of spaghetti. That when water is boiling, it brims up to the top, but you don't really know how much water is in a pot until you take it off the fire and it stops boiling. And then it goes down, and you know how much water is in there. And in a similar way, in our religious experiences, it's important to do the unexpected. It's important to have improvisational moments in our religious life. Where we're doing something, not because we're looking out, not because we're looking at others, but because this is what I feel, this is what I'm connecting to. And if you're not connecting and you're not feeling it, I wanted to say a quick shout out to Hever who are not feeling it and not connecting it and doing it anyways, and they're nervous and they're worried because the pot does come off the fire. Talk to somebody. Self-care is not just about your emotional life. Taking your pulse and making sure that you're making the right decisions and being healthy isn't just about your emotional life. It's not just about seeing a psychologist and making sure that everything is gesund, which everybody should do and must do. But it's also your religious life. And self-care and your religious decisions, and sometimes you feel like you bit off more than you can chew, that you've become somebody that you don't know that you can keep up with, reach out to somebody and talk to somebody about it. I want to finish with the meat of this letter, the final part of this letter, and that's the middle. And this is the part that really... You can sense that Gene Wilder who for him in an interview, he wasn't a religious man. He wasn't a religious man. They asked him in an interview at the end of his life. He, he, he was a profound man. They asked him, are you religious? He said, my religion, and he really said this, my religion is is loving other, other people. That's what he said. That's what it means to me. And you can sense that there was something very profound and very real about him. And I want to read this middle paragraph where he talks about what does it mean to be a dreamer of dreams? What does it mean to become a Willy Wonka? What is he trying to transform into? Read with me one paragraph. 
I don't think of Willy Wonka as an eccentric. He's not weird, who holds on to his 1912 dandy Sunday suit and wears it in 1970. But rather, as just as an eccentric, where there's no telling what he'll do or where he'll ever find his get-up, except that it strangely fits him. Listen closely to this next line. Part of this world, part of another. A vain man who knows that the color that suits him, yet with all the oddity, has strangely good taste. Something mysterious, yet undefined. It's somebody that he's saying that maybe he's different than the outside world. He is eccentric. He clashes with what's going on in the world. But in his system, there are two ways that he describes himself. He's part of this world, he's part of another, and there's something mysterious yet undefined. That when you look at this person, when you look at this character on his own terms, it's not just weird, it's not just eccentric. You see that he's connected to something much more, and you see that there's something mysterious yet undefined. And I want to talk about these two points, because this, I think, is the heart of the letter and the heart of becoming a dreamer. You know, when you come to Camp Hask, and this is my first time here, when you come to this camp, and I think I've just seen it described in promotional material, it's heaven on earth. You think it's, it, it's Shemayim brought down to the Aretz. You're experiencing something otherworldly, but right here. But I think the question that would bother me, and I think the question that we've kind of been touching upon, is, okay, I had the experience, but, but how do I take these experiences with me? What happens when these become memories? What happens when my experience in a camp has, because I'm not there anymore. It's something that I'm talking about in my dorm in Stern. It's something I'm talking about in my room in YU. It's something that I'm kind of connecting to friends about. But I'm not there anymore. And we're just reminiscing. How do you make this experience and take it, not just create heaven on earth, but take heaven with you. Pack it up in a, in a backpack so you can bring it with you. How does that happen? And I think the message falls down to the opening line in Mesiel's Yesharim. In Mesiel's Yesharim, he talks about the Shorish HaChasidus for Yesod HaAvoda. He talks about two different things. He talks about a Shorish, a root, and he talks about a yesod, a foundation. And I have found in the course of my life that the way that we look back on our experiences, the way that we think about our lives going forward fall into two different categories. I think most people think back at their times in seminary, their times in yeshiva, and they say, you know, remember when we were in camp and we had that funny friend, and we had that barbecue, and we had that concert. Remember when we had that davening, we had that Shabbos, 
It was a foundation that you built on and that your whole life has been working off of since. And I think those are moments that I would call remember when moments. But that's the so. that's a foundation that we build upon and that we make decisions off of for the rest of our life. But if I were to tell you one thing in this camp, is that when you look back at these experiences, stop yourself before you say remember when. And instead say, ever since. Ever since I went to camp. Ever since I had that davening. Ever since I had that Shabbos experience. There is a big difference between looking back at a moment, at a static memory, I'm here, the moment's there, and moving forward. What we need to do is open our hearts up and let it penetrate us. That it's not just a yesod, but it's a shoresh. It's something that we continue to nourish ourselves from, and we continue to be connected to. And that's how you take heaven with you. You don't look at moments of heaven and say, remember when, oh my gosh, that Shabbos and we started dancing, and it was cool, and it was fun, and there was a hashtag, and it was, it was great, and there was all this cool shtick about it. That, that's good, that's good. Remember when is good. But if you really want to take this with you, if you really want to take heaven with you, you have to find those private moments where you open up your heart just an inch more and create that shoresh. And that shoresh is where you're going to get nurtured. That shoresh is where you're going to get vitality. And that shoresh is where you're going to look back and you're going to say, ever since. Ever since those moments, it's been different. And that way you're going to be able to remain part of this world and part of another. I'm going to end with, with what I think is the most elusive line in his letter. We spoke about the two inches. We spoke about creating the unexpected, not becoming a caricature. And we spoke about how to keep this world, part of this world, part of another, creating those ever since moments. Those moments that change us for the rest of our lives. But there are four words here that I could, I could think about for an hour. And I'm not going to, because it's late. And there's a concert later. And that's something mysterious, yet undefined. And when I think about this line, I think about Avas Yisrael. I think about why we love one another. Because for everybody in this room, there are reasons and there are people who they connect with and there are things that they enjoy and experiences that they like. But it's important to remember that at the end of the day, Ahavas Yisroel, loving another Jew, comes down to these four letters. Something mysterious yet undefined. If you love Jews because we do well on the LSATs, or you love Jews because Central Avenue and the Five Towns is, is, is always moving and there's, there's great action there, that's wonderful. But that's not mysterious yet undefined Avas Hashem. That's not the beginning of Avram Avinu's story, Avas Hashem. That's not the Ahava that's not tethered to any reason that in a moment could crumble. Mysterious yet undefined is the care and the chesed that happens in Camp Hask when you stretch yourself
and give so selflessly that any reason in the world it's not a resume, it's not self-development, it's not your personal brand, it's not the followers, it's not the stories you're going to tell, nothing can explain it. Because that ahava, that motivation, is something mysterious yet undefined. Because that's what imagination is built on. That's what Avas Yisroel is built on. That's what Avram Avinu's journey is built on. We don't have a reason for why he came out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It was mysterious and undefined. I was thinking about uh, how this, how I could capture this and, and I had a line that, that I, I got nervous. It's, it's going to be taken out of context. So, so don't take it out of context. It can be taken out of context. But when I looked around, I thought to myself, I said, don't fall in love with your Camp Hask experience. Don't fall in love with this. Learn how to fall in love from your Camp Hask experience. Learn how to fall in love from your Camp Hask experience. Yeah, this is great, and this is heaven on earth, and this is part of one world and part of another. But there's another opportunity you are being given here, and it's not falling in love with this experience, it's taking this experience and learning how to fall in love. It's learning how to look at another Jew and see that thing that's mysterious yet undefined. It's learning how to look at someone else and not just have reasons and resumes and points and parents shepping nachas and you're shepping nachas and you feel good and I'm going to tell people, I'm going to post about it, I'm going to write about it, hashtag blessed, the whole thing. It's not that. That's all good. But the opportunity you have here is not to fall in love with an experience, but it's taking an experience and learning how to fall in love. And I think if you do that, the Camp Hask memories that you have, they're not going to be remember when. They're going to be ever since moments. There was a student who went to, uh, to Rav Moshe Shapiro, and he said, I'm nervous, I'm about to leave yeshiva, I'm about to leave my place, and I'm nervous that I can't take this experience with me. I can't recreate this. And Rav Moshe Shapiro answered with him very succinctly. He said, Lo he." But he didn't mean Loba Shamayim, the Torah's not in heaven. He wasn't talking about heaven, Rav Moshe clarified. He said, Torah, this experience of Yeshiva, not Shamayim heaven, but Shamim, all of the Shams of the world, the theirs. Sometimes in life we say, if only I was there, if only I was back in Yeshiva, if I was only back in Camp Hask, if I was only back in that Shabbos experience, if I was only back in my home. If only I was there, I would be able to have these experiences and create these type of moments and connections. And what I think this experience can teach, and what I think this experience can do more than anything else, is teach us to look at another Jew, to look at another person, 
and see something mysterious yet undefined. To create moments that aren't just going to stay with us in our memory, but moments that are going to create shirashim, that are going to take us wherever we are, that we can recreate ourselves, but most of all we can continue to change ourselves. And we can look back at this experience and reminisce and say ever since. Thank you all so very much.